People try to get us down talking about my generations. Yeah. It is extra time, Immaculate Grid. This is the bonus show from Generations talking about my sports generations. I don't know, I'm just geeked up today. Geeked up? It's Jonathan. It is Immaculate Grid Baseball number 124, Monday, the 30th of July. I don't know, just got some energies. So, as always, as we've started to do, clean up some of the stuff from yesterday. And then give you some anecdotes and then jump into the Grizzeds. So yesterday, we were talking about Ramon Martinez and his relationship to Pedro. And yes, they are brothers. I don't know why I said I don't think they're brothers. I think they're cousins or something. They're absolutely brothers. So that was funny. But a little bit on Ramon's career. I mean, he wasn't a slub. Obviously, Pedro's a Hall of Famer, but his brother was pretty good. And he was a Dodger. Oh, man, he was a Dodger. Like, I was glad that Pedro was a Dodger because he wasn't a Dodger that long. He left. And then it was like, <laughs> to the Doyers. But Ramon stayed most of his career as a Dodger, and he was pretty solid. So he debuted as a 20-year-old in 1988. He would play from 88 to 2001. And during that time, he would be a Dodger for all of his career, with the exception of 1999 and 2000 as a Red Sox and 2001 as a Pirate. He would win 20 games in 1990. He would have 12 complete games that year and lead the league. He would be an all-star, and he would finish as Cy Young too. So as we've been doing this over the last several days and kind of tweaking the floor mat and some of the information and things that we give you, I'm starting to really dig on this to dig into these awards and how they got sorted out and where they landed. So Martinez would finish Cy Young 2. Doug Drabeck, the Pirate, would win the Cy Young that year. And he would have a 4.2 war that year. He would lead the league with 22 wins. Ramon Martinez, as we mentioned, was second. And he would have a war of 3.9. So not bad, kind of negligible. You could say, all right, between those two guys, it can go either way, depending on what your favorite flavor of ice cream might be. But here's the interesting piece, because, of course, we're not going to give you this stuff unless there's something interesting to talk about. But Frank Viola, or if you're Francais, Frank Voila, he would lead the league in war with 6.4. He would also lead the league with 35 games started, and he would lead the league in innings with 249.2. His record would be 20 and 12. So same as same number of wins as Martinez. He would lead Drayback and Martinez in ERA. He had a 2.67 ERA. 
Drebeck had a 2.76 ERA and Martinez had a 2.92 ERA. But Frank Viola would finish third. And he was a Met at the time. And this is a 1990. So just one of those interesting, what was going on there? How did we not see this? What was this narrative going on where Viola finishes third and not first? And, you know, when you start looking at the bigger picture, Viola clearly, or in my opinion, was the better pitcher than the two of them. And you could split hairs between Drabeck and Ramon Martinez. But other than Drabeck leading the league in wins, eh. So we wanted to kind of clear that up regarding Ramon Martinez. He is absolutely Pedro's brother. And apparently they had another brother that was rather heralded, but he didn't really quite make it. The other thing was we postulated, is CC Sabathia really a Yankee? Is he known as a Yankee? So we're like, all right, well, let's try to look this up and figure this out. So Sabathia, of course, started as one of the Clevelands. He did eight seasons with Cleveland. He did that, you know, half a season with Milwaukee. Then he did 11 seasons with New York. So during his career, he compiled 27.5 war for the Clevelands in eight seasons. And then, you know, mostly because he just played three extra seasons, he finished with 29.4 war for the Yankee. But I think here's a deciding factor. If Sabathia were to become a Hall of Famer. And this is where, you know, maybe this is where why he puts a Yankee cap on. But he only made $36.5 million with the Clevelands. He made $223 million with the Yankees. So money wins, man. I guess Sabathia's a Yankee. So then we postulated, is Clemens now a Yankee? Or is Clemens still a Boston's? So, of course, we got to look that up. 13 seasons with the Red Sox. Six seasons with New York. He would have 80.8 war, or compile an 80.8 war with Boston. He would only have 21.2 war with New York. So with, with Boston, he's averaging, you know, what's 13 into 80? Six war, give or take. And with New York, he's averaging closer to three. With Boston, he would win three Cy Young Awards and one MVP. But with New York, he would win a Cy Young and two World Series. Here's the other little interesting thing. His two seasons with Toronto, he would win the Triple Crown and win two Cy Young Awards. And then with Houston, he would have a Cy as well, total of seven Cy Youngs. With Boston, followed the money, 35 million earnings. And with 
New York, he would have 62.7. So he'd earn almost, you know, 1.7, 1.8 times more with the Yankees in half as much time. So I don't know. If you're a Boston fan, are you still claiming Clemens or are you like, F that guy? And if you're a Yankee, are you like, yeah, he was with Boston, but you know, it's like Ruth, sucker. He's ours now. So lastly, we talked about Henry Blanco yesterday because we used Blanco because he was in the league for a long time and played for a lot of teams and he can help a lot of folks that are struggling with their immaculate grid. But we looked Henry Blanco's career up. Not a bad career. I mean, you know, he's a backup catcher, but he played 16 seasons. 1997, he was with the Doyers. Not in the league in 98. In 99, Colorado. 2000 and 2001 with Milwaukee. 2002 and 2003, Atlanta. 2004, the Twins. 2005 to 2008, he was a Cub. 2009, he was with the San Diego's. 2010, a Met. 2011 and 12, he's with the Diamondbacks. And in 2013, he split time between Toronto and Seattle. And his career earnings are $16.9 million. Not bad. I think many of us would say, hey, I'm going to bounce around, but I'm going to spend 16 years in the league and I'm going to make almost $17 million over my career. I think I might sign up for that. But Henry Blanco, it seems like between him and Nelson Cruz, you pretty much can do most grids just with those two guys. Unfortunately, you can only pick them once each. But the reason why we are here is grid 120. So if we review the grid from left to right, the columns, the far left, the Clevelands, the center column is the Chicago Cubs, and the achievement on the far right-hand side is MVP. And then the rows from top to bottom are the Philadelphia Phillies. The middle is the Oakland Athletics. And the bottom career achievement is 3,000-plus hits. So we've got a lot of notes for you here, folks. We're going to give you some of these a little rat-a-tat, and we'll have to come back to some of these players because there's just a lot to go over. And if you're listening to the show each day, I think you'll enjoy you know, us pouring over some of these numbers, remembering some of these players, and some of the anecdotes that we're able to find or come up with, or just some of the interesting facts regarding them. And I remiss, we're going to kind of gloss over my first pick. So we always kind of start on that right-hand side because that's how I attack the grid each morning. But with Phillies and MVP top right-hand square, I went with the three-time MVP, Mike Schmidt. And, you know, we've mentioned Schmidt, and we've also mentioned him mostly in comparison with Dale Murphy. 
because it just seemed like in those early 80s, they kind of went back and forth as far as MVP. So we're going to have to get into that in a future show. Mike Smith's career and, and some of those award years, but I went with Schmidt. He was 28% here. He won in 1980, 1981, and 1986. But you only had a handful of options here. Outside of Schmidt, you had five more options. You had Ryan Howard in 2006, Jimmy Rollins 2007, Bryce Harper most recently with 2021. And then you had to really reach back and know Chuck Klein back in 1932 and Jim constantly in 1950. So this was kind of like not as scarce as the White Sox Cy Young from the other day, but you didn't have a whole lot of options here. So for that middle row, far right-hand square, MVP and the Oakland Athletics, we went with Again, because we've been talking about him over the last several days, Dennis Eckersley, and we got in there at six percent. And you had a lot of, a lot of people that you could have chosen for MVP and A's. But we've been talking about those 1990 and 1992 seasons by Eckersley. And in 1992, Eckersley won Cy Young and MVP. And this might be a function of how the baseball writers are a little slow, to say it nicely. It's like you have to do something first and do it often, and then you get recognized it for it later. And we have another example of that coming up in just a moment. But when it comes to Eckersley, his 1990 season is insane. He would not win Cy Young nor, of course, even MVP, but in 1992, he would win both. And again, I think this is the slowness and the laziness, let's call it, of the Baseball Writers Association. And I think there's a lot of younger writers out there that are starting to, you know, try to change this perception and really try to really bring back credibility or even credibility, you know, gain credibility to begin with, because some of these writers Man, come on, man. Come on, man. 1992, Dennis Eckersley, 191 ERA. And here's what batters hit against him. This was the slash. 211 batting average, 242 on base, and 306 slugging. So you're thinking, dude, nobody's hitting this guy. 80 innings pitched, 17 total earned runs, struck out 93 batters, walked 11. 9-1, Kata block ratio just about 51 saves three blown saves so 51 saves and 54 chances you're like man dude was lights out but in 1990 when he probably really should have won these two awards or at least Cy Young that year 0.61 ERA Here's what hitters hit against him. 160 batting average, 172 on base percentage, and a slugging percentage of 0.226. 80 points 
lower than his 1992 numbers. He would pitch 73.1 innings. He would give up five earned runs. Five. So he would pitch, call it seven innings fewer. He would give up 12 fewer runs. He struck out 73. He walked four. An over 18 to one strikeout decay ratio. He would save 48 games. He would blow two. So 48 saves and 50 chances. I mean, come on, man. What, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Logic should rule most things, but clearly, baseball writers. So let's tackle the rest of the grid. We got lots of notes here. So in the bottom right-hand corner for the double achievement, we've got MVP and 3,000-plus hits for their career. And, uh, you, you know, I got to go Giants, baby. Willie Mays. Come on, son. Willie comes in at 6%. So we're going to go a little bit out of the order than we normally go. And we're going to do the middle column and the bottom row. So that's Chicago Cubs and 3,000 plus hits. So I went with Rafael Palmiro at 36%. That one's easy. Boom. Got it. No problem. Didn't even think twice about it. But as always, I go back and look these things up to see, okay, what were my other options? Dude, your choices were Palmero, and then Cap Anson or Lou Brock. Number one, I wasn't coming up with Camp Anson. And number two, for whatever reason, I think of Lou Brock more as a cardinal not a cub and totally forgot that he was actually a cub so those were your choices you had three so it's kind of like the white Sox and cy young question from the other day just wasn't going to happen and because we talked about it before and we said we we're going to give you another example of why the baseball writers are lazy rafael palmero during his career Four-time All-Star, three times Gold Glove. However, comma, in 1999, one of those three Gold Gloves would be the Gold Glove where he appeared in 28 games at first base and appeared in another 128 games at DH. So he earned that Gold Glove sitting on the bench, warming up his bats. I mean, whatever you feel about Palmero, whatever you feel about that era, I'm just wondering, for him, does he go, I got these two gold gloves that I won. And you know what? I earned those. And that third one kind of might be in the garage. Because he knows deep down inside, dude, those guys don't know what they're doing. And I'm not trying to ding the guy, but I mean, you know, 
those that are great at their craft and those that take pride in their work, which I think I, you know, I take pride in my work. I don't get gold gloves, but I take pride in the things that I do. And I want to make sure that, you know, I get credit, the appropriate amount of credit for the things that I do. I don't want to take credit for things that I don't do or take credit for the, uh, things that others do. So I got to imagine Paul Merrill's the same, like he's just a person. And so I'm just wondering if he's like, you know, yeah, I won that award, but eh, it's just, it doesn't really do it for me. And so that one's in the garage. The other two, yeah, those are up on the mantle. I earned those. Those are legit. So I just wonder. So that same year, 1999, he finished MVP5. However, comma, he would finish with 5.2 war, which was 10th. Now, again, when we say 10th, that's 10th for positional players. We're not, not including pitchers because that year, Pedro finished second in MVP and Pedro's war was, you know, led the league basically. But as we've discussed before, pitchers and positional players the war is calculated differently and you can't say this war and that war i mean it's already tough to try to compare war across eras and compare war across positions because it's all relative each year across the specifics of each of those players that play each of those positions so there's a lot of dependency and specificity year to year position to position so, I mean, it's close and you can have that discussion, but it's not exact. But you really can't compare war between pitchers and position players. They're just apples and oranges. They're not calculated the same way. So they're not really, you know, it's not, it's not equatable. You just can't do it. But he'd be MVP five and he'd finish 10th in war with 5.2. So here's how it finished. You would have Jeter, who would lead positional war with 8.0. He would lead the league in hits with 219. He would finish MVP six. And this is a Yankee. Like you think there's bias with the Yankees. You'd think that'd be all right. I'm in MVP six. Robbie Alomar would finish with a war of 7.4. He would lead the league in runs with 138. He would finish tied for MVP three. Then you have Manny Ramirez for the uninitiated. Would finish with a 7.3 war, so pretty negligible to Alomar's. And he would finish tied in that third place for MVP voting. He would lead the league in RBI with 165. Slugging with 663 and OPS with 1.105. So that is MVP two, tied for third, tied for third, and six. Palmero finished fifth. Pedro was second. Yvonne Rodriguez Pudge would win MVP with a war of 6.4. So, I mean, you could shake them up and put them in a pot and put them out on the table 
And, you know, you can say Alomar, Manny, Rodriguez, pick one. You're probably fine with any of the three. Palmero a distant five. But Jeter? Leader in hits? War of eight? You look at the rest of those numbers and you're like, he finished sixth? So then you have even further to compound the story or the complexity of this. So we said Manny had a war of 7.3. So then you have Nomar, that's Garcia Parra again for the uninitiated, with a war of 6.6. .6. He led the league in average at 357. Then Pudge comes in after Nomar. If Sean Green was tied with Pudge with 6.4, you have Omar Vizquel. He batted 333. He had a war of 6.0 that year. So you kind of got all these guys kind of lumped fairly close together. Jambi had 5.9 war, and Bernie Williams had a war of 5.4. Then you have Palmero. So MVP5, that's Palmero's highest position as far as an MVP award. The year he wins a gold glove when he only plays 28 games in the field. And quite possibly, Jared Jeter was snubbed with an MVP that year was clearly the leader in war that year and you know a comprehensive view at stats you would say that that's the guy plus he's a yankee he's the captain that was 1999 so palmero so let's jump to that far left hand square cuz it's all going to tie tie together The Cleveland's and 3,000 plus hits. So you only had three options with the Cubs. You had four options with the Cleveland's. And oh, by the way, if you were listening to yesterday's show, you had one of the answers. And it was the answer that we went with because we talked about it yesterday. I'm going to try to shoehorn Dave Winfield in any and every single box that he possibly fits. And he absolutely fits here because he had that last rando season Spent those two years with the Twins and his last rando season with the Clevelands. 3,000-plus hits, Hall of Famer, Dave Winfield. And you only had three other options. You had Tris Speaker, who is a 1900s player that had like an amazing rando, like 170 RBI year and another 370 or 372 average year. I mean, he's got some crazy stats. We used to use him in the old Earl Weaver computer baseball game. I've mentioned that in other episodes. But Tris Speaker was a, a favorite of ours because the guy could just rake in that game. So he was one of your possible answers. One of your other possible answers was Nap Lahoy. Once again, another guy that we played with on Earl Weaver baseball, the computer game. But I mean, you know, we're talking about guys that are you know, they're old enough to be our grandfather's parents if they were still alive. And maybe even our grandparents' grandparents, depending on how old. And then your last option, number four, was Eddie Murray. So 3,000 hits in the Clevelands. So this is how it's going to tie all back together. 
There are seven players with 500 home runs or more and 3,000 hits or more. And many of them are new entrants or relatively new entrants. The king of them all, of course, is Hank Aaron. 755 home runs, 3,771 hits. We're going to jump to the man that was kind of in that space for a long time, along with Aaron by themselves, Willie Mays. 660 home runs, 3,293 hits. And it was those two for a really, 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 really long time. Not until Eddie Murray became the third player with 504 home runs and 3,293 hits. So you you would have to go 30 plus years before a third player would join Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. But since then, you have four more entrants. Albert Pujols. 703 home runs, 3,384 hits. You have A-Rod with 696 home runs, 3,115 hits. And you have the gentleman that just joined the group, Miguel Cabrera, with 507 home runs and counting, and 3,088 hits and counting. And then you have Rafael Palmero with 569 home runs, 3,020 hits. End of list. That's a 30 Rock reference for you. If you care. So let's go to the rest of the grid. Got a couple more. Interesting tidbits for you. So in the top left-hand corner, you've got the Clevelands and the Phillies. That was pretty easy with Cliff Lee. For a period of time, he might have been the best left-handed pitcher in all of baseball, if not the best pitcher overall. He came in at 31%. Then in the top middle square, we have the Chicago Cubs and the Phillies. And of course, Mr. Wild Thing, Mitch Williams, comes in at 1%. For those that don't remember Mitch Williams or didn't get to see him pitch, he was the guy that left-handed pitcher was falling off the mound when he was pitching. There was a lot of just gyrations and movement in his delivery. He had the long mullet, you know, flowing hair in the back. and. Because of the exertion or the appearance of exertion, I guess, you would think he threw a lot harder than he did. And earlier in his career, I think he did throw very, very hard. But definitely by the end, when he famously gave up the home run to Joe Carter in the World Series, when Toronto beat the Phillies, I think at that point, you know, maybe his arm was 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 starting to get a little tired and he actually his career 
wouldn't last much longer than that after that World Series. But Mitch Williams for the Phillies and Cubs, that was pretty simple at 1%. So here's the last two squares and our last little bit of just information for you. So for the Clevelands and the Oakland Athletics, I went with Brooke Jacoby at 0.2%. So I remember Brooke Jacoby vividly in my mind, and I used to be so enamored with his baseball card, especially his 1987 baseball card. Because this is before the interwebs. This is before we could just have a question come into our mind and just look it up and say, hey, what if, is that, where does that rank? How does that look? And I used to wonder and marvel without any real way to know or check. But since we have this opportunity, I did look it up and I was right. Not because I knew, it was only because I supposed. I never read it anywhere. I don't recall seeing it anywhere. I don't remember anybody talking about it. Because again, we didn't have baseball tonight in 1987. You got a three to five minute blurb on sports in the evening time on your local broadcast. We didn't have cable in 1987 at home. My grandfather had cable, but if I was at his house, Twice an hour, you got a little quick rip of the scores for the day on CNN twice a day. And again, ESPN wasn't what it is now, and SportsCenter absolutely was not anywhere close to what it became. So we just weren't getting these kinds of pieces of information about individuals or anyone. We, you know, you're lucky to get the scores. And if you lived on the East Coast, you were subject to the time of a game on the West Coast finishing early enough for it to be in the box score the following day because the, the paper had to go to print. So the West Coast game, if you're a team, if you're a favorite team, let's say you're a Braves fan and you didn't have TBS or you didn't stay up to watch the game. In the Atlanta Journal, the following day, it would say night game. West Coast or something to that effect. You didn't get the box score. You had no idea if the Braves even won. And you'd have to wait till the following day to get that box score. So here's the thing that'd be weird. Let's say back then you play a Monday night game, Tuesday night game, Wednesday day game, getaway day to go play somewhere else. So let's say that Tuesday night game, you didn't get the box score. Wednesday would be a day game. So that game would finish before the paper went to print. So Thursday, you would actually get the box score for Tuesday and Wednesday. You would get two box scores for the price of one. And so being able to look things up and know was almost impossible. And access to the information or being able to look things up was very, very difficult. But Brooke Jacoby in 1987, he had 69 RBI, he had 32 home runs, and he had a 300 average. And I always wondered, did he have the fewest RBI for someone with more than 30 home runs and a 300 average? 
And for this, I looked it up. And sure enough, he did. And he held that record all the way till 2008, when Hanley Ramirez would hit 301, 33 home runs, and 67 RBI. So Ramirez now holds the distinction for fewest RBI to home runs and a 300 average. And I've been wondering since 1987 if Brooke Jacoby was, in fact, the holder of that distinguished record. And the answer is yes. So there you go. Brooke Jacoby, the Clevelands and the Oakland Athletics, comes in at 0.2%. And then you've got the Chicago Cubs and the Athletics, 0.2%, Mr. Ben Grieve. And you say, how do I know this? I've got three A's in here. We've talked about this. I hate the A's. Despise the A's. I have mass and Freud Freud for the A's. But again, for their performance on the field, not for the city of Oakland. And I have no sympathy, empathy, or anything towards the A's owners. They've done a terrible job to that team. They have negotiated, in my opinion, less than forthright with the city of Oakland. And again, with Oakland, it's a weird deal. The stadium's actually through the county of Alameda. So it always made things very, very wonky and difficult. But there's no shortage of mayors that attempted to do something with the A's and never really able to get anything across the line. Uh, Mayor Kwan, Libby Schaff. Mayor Brown, who was also, of course, Jerry Brown's our governor twice. But um, yeah, so I don't have any ill will. I don't want to see the A's move. I want to continue to hate them. That's my friend Tim's favorite team. But Ben Grieve, Rookie of the Year. That's how I know Ben Grieve. And then he would he would be solid for a few years. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if he got hurt or what his situation was. He would leave the A's, go to the Cubs, and do one or two seasons, and that was it. The guy wasn't even in the league that long. But since 1986, the A's have had six Rookies of the Year. 86, of course, Jose Canseco. 87, McGuire. 88, Walt Weiss. 98 was Ben Grieve. 2004, Bobby Crosby. And 2009, Andrew Bailey. And it's just amazing on how one franchise has somehow cornered the market. And many of these are before any kind of Billy Bean and any of that Billy Ball or any of that kind of stuff, right? Conseco McGuire, Weiss, I want to say Bean played with, I'm sure he played with at least Conseco. So now we got to go look that up tomorrow. Might He might have been on the 87 team as well. But Ben Grieve, 0.2% Cubs and A's. So share your grids. We're having a blast doing this. I can't keep saying that enough. Interact with the show. We appreciate it. The big show 
generations. Talking about my sports generations with Steve and myself is every Saturday drops at noon Pacific time. And then this show, Extra Time, Immaculate Grid, the bonus show for generations talking about my sports generations. We do this show every single day. It posts at 9 p.m. Pacific. So if you're doing your grids late and you decide to listen to this, there might be some spoilers. But we're having a blast. We'll see you guys all tomorrow. Have a great one. It's Jonathan. We'll see you.